How was your week? Lots of you said good. Anybody have a bad week? Okay, not too many. A couple, maybe. We got a call on Monday morning from our son who lives in Highland Park. He said, Dad, we won't be meeting. Just got word that um, they live about a mile from the parade route there in Highland Park where the shooting took place. And they were locked down for a period of time. So our week started with a real uh, sadness over that tragedy. I hardly know how to think. I hardly know how to pray sometimes when some of these events take place. Doesn't mean we don't pray. Pray all the more. But finding the words is not easy. Thank God he's a good God. We come this morning out of a lot of different experiences in the past week. I've always marveled at the fact that you can invite God's people to come together around his word and around fellowship, and um, we can come out of a, a hundred, two hundred different varieties of weeks, and the Spirit of God knows just how to minister to the individual needs of each and every one of us. So thankful for that. His word will speak to you today if you will listen. I don't know what I have to say will, but his word will. It'll speak powerfully into your life. Let's see what he has to say to us. You know that Pastor Jeff has been working through the church year, and so he had invited me to simply pick up where he was <clears throat> preaching through this portion of the Gospel of Luke. And we began, or I say I entered into that a couple of weeks ago. This morning, we find ourselves in Luke 10, a very familiar passage. I'm going to read beginning at verse 25 in chapter 10 of Luke. One day, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question. Teacher, what must I do to receive eternal life? Jesus replied, what does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right, Jesus told him, do this and you will live. The man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with an illustration. A Jewish man was traveling on a trip from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes and money, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a Jewish priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at the man lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt deep pity. Kneeling beside him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with medication and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two pieces of silver and told him to take care of the man. If this bill runs higher than that, he said, I'll pay the difference the next time I'm here. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. 
And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. Well, the incident in our text for today takes place on Jesus' final trip up to Jerusalem. His ministry has been carrying on for perhaps a little over two years now, and he's in the third and final year of his ministry. Beyond this, we know very little about the timing of the event in front of us. The only reference to time is found in the words, one day. And there's no mention whatsoever of where it took place. What we are told is that on this particular day, a lawyer, an expert in Jewish law, stood up to test Jesus. Now, our commentaries tell us that he was a scribe. More specifically, he was a lawyer, a particular uh, class of scribe whose, whose responsibility it was to interpret fine matters of law, Jewish law. While we have no such profession in our day and age, it will be more helpful, I think, and closer to the truth if you think of this man not as a lawyer, but as a seminary professor whose specialty was Old Testament studies. Such men were highly regarded in Jesus' day, for, first for their knowledge and then also for their religiosity. You know, my personal understanding of this man uh, and his profession is informed by an incident that happened uh, in the early days of my ministry, nearly 50 years ago. I remember I arrived at the church office one day to learn that a, a member of our congregation, who was also a teacher of Old Testament studies in a nearby seminary and a worldwide expert in Old Testament languages, had experienced a heart attack the night before and was currently in the local hospital. One of the other staff members who knew him better than I offered to go and visit him. As he told his story to me later, he thought at some length about what scripture he would share with this renowned Old Testament scholar. He said he didn't feel comfortable just going in and reading one of those very, very familiar, comforting passages. He thought this man is worthy of something more meaty. So he found a rather obscure, and yet he felt helpful passage, and he came to him, he sat beside him, and, and he began to read. As the man lay there, he, he noticed that he was fully asleep, and so he read in somewhat muted tones so as to not disturb him. Quietly, quietly, he turned to his chosen text and read it aloud. And when the patient showed no sign whatsoever of waking, he, uh, he simply offered a short prayer and then headed for the door, only to hear the patient reciting word for word the passage he had just read for him, only this time in the original Hebrew language. I share that story with you only by way of giving you a glimpse into the kind of expertise the man in our story for today would have possessed. At any rate, on the particular day in question, this man, this expert in the Hebrew Scriptures, stood up to test Jesus by asking him a question. This wasn't the first time, it wasn't the only time that the religious leaders of Christ's day came to him, calling him teacher and putting him to the test to see if he really knew the Scriptures. Most of the time, this testing was done in an attempt to catch Jesus in some errant, if not heretical, teaching. 
And many, if not most, of the rabbis of Jesus' day were upset by Jesus' popularity among the multitudes and really hoped that they might publicly discredit him. But it's unclear from our text for today whether this expert in the law was hoping to trap Jesus into saying something that would discredit him or whether he really wanted to know what this new teacher, this new rabbi, had to add to one of the chief theological discussions of his day, namely the question, what must one do to receive eternal life? You may recall that on another occasion recorded in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 18 and verse 18, Luke records the story of a rich young ruler who also came to Jesus asking this very same question. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Anyhow, the question was certainly a legitimate one, a worthy one, unlike some of the questions that had been addressed to Jesus with the obvious intent of tricking him. For instance, you may recall the day that the Sadducees came to Jesus, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. And they came with a question, but their question read like this. Teacher, they said, Moses said, if a man dies without children... His brother should marry the widow and have a child who will become that man's heir. Well, there were seven brothers. The oldest married a woman and then died without children. So the second brother married the widow. And this brother also died without children. And, and, and the wife was married to the next brother and so on and so on until she had been married to each of them, each of the seven. And when she died also, tell us, Lord, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Because she was the wife of all seven of them. You may recall that on that occasion, as on numerous others, Jesus' answer was so astute that the multitudes marveled at his ability to put the Sadducees in their place. But in our text for today, there is nothing to support or to suggest that the scribe engaging Christ in dialogue has evil intent. To begin with, the Greek word test doesn't mean what we would typically think of it. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have any negative connotation. Second, from this question, <clears throat> far from this question being about some minute point of the law, or some unlikely application of the law, it's worthy of consideration both on <clears throat> theological and personal grounds. What could be more important for anyone to ask of Christ than this question, what must I do to have eternal life? And finally, Jesus' dialogue with the man suggests that he was talking quite seriously and taking the man quite seriously, treating him with both patience and, and with thoughtful insight. That brings us then to the two questions posed by this expert in the law, and I'm going to suggest that they, they were seriously intended. The first question was this, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus' response to that question appears in verse 26. He says to the man, what does the law of Moses say? 
How do you read it? He knew the man was an expert in the law. He knew, Jesus of all people, knew that the law was part of the word of God that had been given in an authoritative way to the people of God. So he refers him back to it. What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? Now, there are several things about Jesus' answer that I think deserve our attention. And the first is this. He respects both the man and his question. There is no attempt to put him in his place or suggest this is a silly little question. He doesn't belittle him in front of others. If the man had meant this to be a contest of the wills, Jesus had not taken the bait. The second thing I notice about Jesus' response is that he doesn't set himself up as the expert, although he might well have done that, but he didn't. Remember, I remember many years ago listening in on a debate between an atheist and a brilliant biblical scholar. It quickly became apparent that the biblical scholar had by far the, the greater intellect, and he was merciless in his verbal attack on his atheist adversary. So much so that while I agreed with virtually every one of this Bible scholar's arguments, by the time the debate was over, all my sentiments were with the atheist. Jesus, on the other hand, is both gentle and polite. Third, he responds to the man by pointing to his own area of expertise, that is, pointing to the man's area of expertise. He points to the Mosaic law. What does the law of Moses, which you are such an expert in, what does it say, he asked him? How do you read it? And every true Jew knew that the heart of the Mosaic law was the Ten Commandments. They also knew that the Ten Commandments are broken into two sections. First, there are laws regulating man's conduct with God. And then there are laws regulating man's conduct with his fellow man. And with this in mind, the expert in the Jewish law quoted from two Old Testament passages. First from Deuteronomy 6.5, where we read, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. And then he, then he quoted from Leviticus 19.18, And love your neighbor as yourself. This he was saying, these laws are at the very heart of God's word to us, and this is the road to eternal life. And Jesus, for his part, congratulates the legal expert on his answer. Right, he says. You're correct. But then he immediately adds, now, go and do the same, or do this and you will live. Jesus' answer is a, a necessary reminder that obedience to the laws of God requires more than the right answer. It requires more than good scholarship. It requires that we practice what we preach. And that leads the religious expert to ask a second question of Jesus. And who is my neighbor, he asked. Hmm. Luke tells us in verse 29 that the man asked the second question in an effort to justify himself. 
Perhaps what he feels the need to justify is the simplicity of his question. Perhaps those around him expected him to ask some very erudite question, some obscure question from the scriptures, but he hasn't done that. He's asked such a simple question, and Jesus, for his part, has turned the whole thing around so that the man winds up answering his own question. Maybe he feels a little bit stupid on this occasion and feels the need to justify his intellect. I don't know, but I rather suspect that wasn't the point here. I rather suspect that it was, it was something other, something more that he felt the need to justify. I believe his own words convicted him. And love your neighbor as yourself, he had said. And Jesus had responded by saying, good, now do it. Leaving the man asking himself, am I really doing it? Am I practicing what I preach? Now, certainly Jesus didn't mean that we must love, a man would have thought to himself. Certainly, Jesus can't mean that we're to love everyone as we love ourselves. He couldn't possibly mean that. Could he? Certainly, he's talking about loving other Jewish people, or loving other people who are at least somehow polytheists, some people who are good people, anyhow. Certainly, Jesus couldn't mean that we're to love the goyim, the, the pagans, those who are not Jewish, those that we have no commerce with, no interaction with because they're unclean according to the law. Certainly he couldn't mean that we're to love the tax collectors, those of our own kind, Jewish people who sold out to the Romans and collect taxes and take everything they can from us in the name of being good citizens. Certainly Jesus didn't mean that we're to love the Samaritans of all people, because they were the most hated of all. And if I'm right in my assumption, my assessment of what it was that this scribe felt the need to justify, then I think we have an answer as to why Jesus told a parable about a Samaritan on this occasion. You recall the story. It's a very familiar one. It's one of the most well-loved and most well-known, not only by people inside the church, but by people on the outside too. Let me take just a moment to refresh our memories concerning the details of this parable. I'm not going to go into depth, but just to look over the details for a moment. You remember the story begins with a Jewish man who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho when he's attacked by bandits. And if this were to happen today, we would no doubt expect a carjacking at this point. Of course, he wasn't driving a car. We don't even know if he was if he was on a donkey, but if not, there he might have been a donkey jacking. I'm not sure if they had those, but to any, at any rate, he was attacked. And the man was stripped of his clothes and his money, and he was left half dead beside the road. And as he lays there bloody and dying, three men pass by. First, a Jewish priest, a clergyman, okay? Take it out of that room for just a clergyman, a pastor, a priest passes by, whose job it was, in this case, to offer sacrifices in the temple. Next, a temple assistant, a Levite, passes by whose job would be much like that of a deacon or a trustee in the church today, assisting the priest by caring for the buildings and the supplies and ministering to the needs of those who came up to the temple to worship. Finally, a Samaritan, the most hated of all people groups by the Jews, half-breeds and heretics with whom the Jews had a long history of hatred, passes by. 
You'll note in verse 33 that Jesus even refers to the Samaritan as despised because that's what they were by the Jewish people. Jesus isn't saying he despised them. He's saying, you know, the despised Samaritans, the people you despised. And one by one, Jesus describes how each of these three men responded to the dying man lying along the roadside. The priest, he says, when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by. He didn't want to get involved at all, did he? Next came the Levite, the deacon. This man stopped long enough to have a good look at the man, but then he passed by on the other side of the road just as the priest had done. Finally, a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt deep pity. Hold on to that. I'm going to come back to that phrase later. He felt deep pity. Kneeling beside him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with medication, and the text says he bandaged them, and then he put the man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn where he took care of him. But he wasn't done yet, because the text says the next day he handed the innkeeper two pieces of silver, and he told him to take care of the man, and he said, if his bill runs higher than this, the next time I'm in the area, I'll make up the difference. And Jesus concluded by asking the religious expert, this question, recorded in verse 36. Now, which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Was it your pastor? Was it your deacon? Or was it a despised Samaritan? Before we go any further and see how the expert in Jewish law responded to Jesus' question, let me point out something that Jesus has skillfully done in the way he poses the question. Do you remember the question that the religious leader asked Jesus? He said, who is my neighbor? Who do I have to love in order to receive eternal life? But instead, Jesus tells the story in which the one person in all the world that he hopes he won't be responsible to love, a despised Samaritan, is actually the one who's showing mercy to a Jewish man like him. And in doing this, Jesus completely turns the table. It's it's the love of God. It isn't the title neighbor that determines whom we should help. It's the love of God, the love he's commanded us to have for one another that that is displayed on the pathway. That's the question we must ask ourselves, not who is my neighbor, but do I love others, all others, even as I love myself? Am I a good neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but am I a good neighbor? Over the years of counseling, So often when I meet with young couples who were preparing for marriage, we would talk about the difficulties, the awkwardness of of coming together and merging two lives. And sometimes I'd have a chance to talk with the parents, and and the parents would kind of communicate this thought, I hope George is worthy of my Susie. I hope he's a good man, and, and Susie, you know, George's parents would say, I hope Susie's up to the task. You know, George is a wonderful young man. And I'd meet with the two of them, and I'd say, Susie, you do understand your biggest problem isn't George, it's Susie. And George, you understand your biggest problem isn't isn't Susie, it's George. You take care of George, Susie will be okay. And Jesus says, don't ask who your neighbor is. 
that's not what it's about. It's, will you be the lover of men that I call you to be? Now, let's return to Jesus' conclusion or his concluding statement posed to the religious expert. He says, which of these three men would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? Ray Summers, in his commentary, says this. He says, there was only one answer, and the lawyer was both clever enough and honest enough to give it. The one who showed mercy to him. The man whom he is to love is the man who needs his compassion and help, regardless of physical, social, religious, or racial status. Notice that the the scholar of the law, even in giving the right answer, can't bring himself to even say the word Samaritan. He says, oh, probably the one who is merciful, he's the one. So then what's Jesus' bottom line to the man's question, what must I do to receive eternal life? Simply this. He says, love God with all you have and all you are, all the time of your life, 24-7, and love everybody else, regardless of their pedigree, just like you love yourself. That's the way to have it. But not just for a moment, mind you. That would be impossible enough, right? Go and do it 24-7 for the rest of your life, and you will receive eternal life. I remember some years ago sitting in on a debate between two of my professors in seminary. They were debating the question, if a man or a woman had somehow managed to fulfill this law, the law of perfect love towards God and perfect love toward man, would God have granted that individual eternal life on the basis of their love for God and for fellow man? One of the, one of the scholars said, yes, because God keeps his promises, and he's attached to keeping of the law, this promise of life. And the other professor said, no, because only the shed blood of Jesus Christ can justify a man or a woman through, with the holy God. But on this, they both agreed, and this is the key matter. The question is purely academic, since in reality, it is impossible for any one of us here this morning to love God and to love our fellow man as the law requires for even a moment, let alone a lifetime. And all that brings us to a third question. One that doesn't appear in the text, but one that I think begs to be asked and answered. And it's this. Why does Jesus point this man to the law instead of to the cross? Do you ever wonder that? I'm not surprised how many times over the years I've heard this passage preached without so much as a sentence on this topic, you might ask, but does it really matter whether or not we ask and answer this question? And the answer is, it, it, yeah, it does matter. This is the question behind the questions. If we walk away from this text with the understanding that Jesus' final answer to the question about eternal life is that it's yours if you can live a life of perfect love, We've not only completely misunderstood Christ's teaching, we've also left ourselves without a prayer for ever experiencing eternal life. Because who among us 
can claim that our love for God is a love that emanates from our hearts, our souls, our strengths, all our might, and that our love for our brothers is as deep and as constant and as obsessive as our love for ourselves. Simply put, if this is the road to eternal life, we're all in deep, deep trouble. So, back to our third question. Why does Jesus point this man to the law instead of the cross? And I think there are numerous ways in which we can answer this, but I want to suggest at least three ways this morning that may be helpful in our thinking. The first is this. The cross was not yet an historical reality. The cross was not yet an historical reality. It's true that Jesus had set the stage for the church, the church's teaching on salvation through his sacrificial death on the cross, but it would be approximately a year before the saving blood of Christ was shed on Calvary and before the message of the cross was preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. What this man understood and what he believed was the law of Moses as given as given to the Jewish people. So that's exactly where Jesus began in his conversation with him. A second reason why Jesus pointed the religious man, this religious leader of the law, to the law instead of the cross was that the law was God's schoolmaster to teach us our own disobedience. See, Jesus knew that the reason Father God had given his people the law was so they might learn right from wrong. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 7, tells us, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that my sin was sin if the law hadn't told me so. So while Jesus couldn't yet point to the man on the cross because that hadn't happened yet, he could send this man back to the law which would help him understand that he was a sinner in need of a savior. The third reason that Jesus pointed the religious expert back to the law was this. While the law cannot give us the power to do God's will or to inherit eternal life, it can point us to the one who can free us from sin's control and give us the gift of eternal life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes... The law of Moses could not save us. That is, it could not free us from the power of sin, nor could it give us the gift of eternal life. But God put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent his own son. And it was the law of God that God used to point men to their need for a Messiah and the promise of a Messiah who would come one day and be the savior of sinful men and women. You know, I think we could only imagine the conversation that would have occurred had the resurrected Christ, post-cross, post-resurrection, and the expert in the law met up one more time to talk. It might have gone something like this. Jesus, tell me, my friend, what have you learned, what have you learned from your efforts to keep the law of God? Expert in the law. I even learned that the law does not, does an ex, it does an excellent job of convicting me of my sin. But it does nothing to help me overcome my sin, nor does it give me the least assurance of eternal life. 
To which Jesus might say for the third time to this man, write again. Only I can do that. That's why I came to earth. To live that perfect life that you could not live. To live that perfect life for you. In your place. And then to pay the price for your sins. So that you can be justified before Father God. Of course we have no scripture. No evidence to suggest that such a conversation ever took place. But we can only hope that this man lived long enough. To learn of Jesus' death on the cross. And to hear the good news that by putting one's faith in Jesus as God's Son and our Savior, he could receive what he so desperately longed for, eternal life. Well, so far in our study, um, we've addressed the religious man's need for a Savior and how Jesus answered that need. But there's another lesson to be learned from this parable, isn't there? the lesson we're most accustomed to hearing about when we study this passage. And that, of course, is what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves. Some years ago now, Sherry and I uh, undertook a home study with 12 young couples from our church in Deerfield, Illinois. And each week we would meet together with them, share a meal, Sherry would spend some time with the women, I'd spend some time with the men, and then we'd all get together and turn to a passage of Scripture study that text together and its implications for, for living out a discipled life, a fully, fully functional discipling life for Christ. One night, a cold and snowy winter evening, we met uh, together for study. And the scripture for our study that evening was the parable of the Good Samaritan. After an hour and a half of study and discussion, I thanked them for coming out in such a a hideous evening and said goodnight, invited them to come back next week, left for home. And on our way home, on a narrow, snow-covered road between our home and the home where we had gathered, we came across a car that had obviously slid off the highway and into a deep culvert. And I observed as the gentleman who had been driving that car was digging and digging, had thrown his coat to one side, was trying desperately to get his way, dig his way out of that ditch. And, and I immediately felt sorry for him, wouldn't you? And I thought to myself, man, he's in a, he's in a bad way. I'm sure glad that's not me. I probably even prayed, Lord, don't let me slide into the ditch, okay? And then I pulled my car out a little bit so I wouldn't be in his way, and I went on. And as I went further, still driving home, something began to bother me. And I said, wait a minute, man, you've just been teaching about the Good Samaritan. You're going to leave that guy back there on the side of the road? And then I started giving myself all these good reasons. Hey, my wife is with me. You don't know who this guy is. He could be a mucker. He could be a murderer. There could be somebody in the back seat. You just don't know. You could get out and try and help him. And Marty, you know you're a klutz. You're not good with your hands. Maybe you go home and call the AAA and have them come out and help him. Or call a mechanic. You know, do something. But you don't want to stop that. That's not the way to do it. That's not what it means to be a good Samaritan. And I went home and started to watch TV, and I just couldn't get this out of my head. So finally, I said to one of our sons who was still home at that time, in his late teens, I said, come on, your dad's got a job to do, and I need your help. So we got in the car, and we drove back. And i got to tell you, this is the part I'm most guilty about. The whole way back, I'm praying, oh, Lord, don't let him be there. 
I pray, I pray, somebody else probably came along and helped him. I don't want to have to be the one. If I got to do this, I'll do it. But please don't make me be the one. Okay. By the grace of God, he wasn't there when I got there. <laughs> when I remember uh, that evening, my mind always goes to the closing verses of our passage for today. Jesus says, which of the three men was a neighbor to the man in need? And the religious expert says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says, right. Now you do the same. I'm quite sure there is not a one of us here today that doesn't want to think of him or herself as a loving and caring neighbor. Huh? But one is not a good Samaritan and one is not a compassionate neighbor because he's just been to church and heard a sermon on the Good Samaritan. Or even because he's just preached a sermon or taught a Bible study on being a Good Samaritan. Rather because he actually shows mercy to those around him who are in need. Not, not intellect, but will is the key. Jesus says, now go and do it. Go and do it. A few years back, I was talking with a friend who'd gone through a very difficult time, and he referred me to a book, which I still have on my shelf. I haven't read it yet, okay? It may be because the title just convicts me so much. It's got the world's greatest two-word title, okay? Some of you may have read this book. It's entitled, Love Does doesn't say what it does. It just says love does. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Now go and do it. Don't just tell me about it. Don't quote Mosaic scripture to me. Let's not have an argument over nothing. Go and do it. Sounds simple? Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Because you see, this, I'm going to meddle a little bit now, okay? Do I get to do that? Just maybe two minutes, all right? You and I live in an age when others are constantly taking advantage of us, Right? I'm not sure it's always been true, but it just seems to me truer than at any time in my life, at least. Trying to steal our identity. What a a rotten thing to do. Or scam us out of our hard-earned money. Or just get ahead of us in line. The phone rings it says scam or it says whatever. And I say to Sherry, don't pick it up. It's just somebody that's trying to get their hand in our pocket. And most of the time, we really don't get too upset about it because we learned ways around it. We go to the other side of the road and walk around. But sometimes, even the most non-combative among us, and I'm not referring to myself, Sometimes even the most non-combative among us thinks, that's it. I've had enough of that. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Right? As I once said to a fellow who thoroughly disgusted me, being a Christian doesn't mean being a sucker. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Oh, we don't go looking for somebody to cuss out. We don't go looking for... Somebody to punch out. After all, Christians don't do those kind of things, right? But I wonder if on such occasions we simply stop looking 
you know, we're the Levite who walks over, takes a look, and says, uh-huh, that's really bad, and then we walk away. But we start walking on the other side of the road, so we simply don't have to feel the pain. I wonder how often we just shut down, close up our, here it is, tender bowels of mercy. You remember that phrase from the King James? I always loved that as a kid. I don't know how many times I had my mom explain that to me. Mommy, mommy, what does it mean? Don't shut your tender bowels of mercy. You know, that means somebody had a tummy ache? What's that all about? Well, in the ancient world, it was considered that the lower part of the abdomen and, and, and the liver in particular and those parts of your innards that get that queasy feeling, that knotted feeling when we see something that it really hurts or we see somebody in trouble, that's what they were referring to. Those were your tender bowels of mercy. Your splanksna was the word for it in the Greek. It was like saying your liver. And Jesus was saying to his followers, and he's saying to us yet today, I believe, don't shut down your tender bowels of mercy. Don't shut out the pain of your life, of your world. Don't shut out the hard things. That's not what I've called you to. Who is the good neighbor? Jesus asked. The one who shows mercy, says the man. Uh Uh-huh, says Jesus. You got it, pal. Now go and do it. Spirit of God, we're good talking about being good. And we're good at studying your word. And I thank you so much for the truthfulness and the head-on honesty of Scripture. May we be just as good at doing your word. And in this case, Father, the call is to love not to shy away, not to shut down our feelings, our hurt, our, our disappointment, our discouragement, not to be shut down by those things so that we cease to be the compassionate, loving servants of Jesus Christ to our age. Teach me, Father. Teach us all to do love. Amen.